Remain standing for the gospel, which is taken from John chapter 8, verses 12 through 20. Hear the gospel of the Lord. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, Even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are right because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law it is written that the testimony of two men is valid. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the one who sent me, the Father. Then they asked him, where is your father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple area near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his time had not yet come. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. In uh, John's Gospel, we're told that Jesus went to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. And according to Jewish tradition, reliable Jewish tradition, there were four 75-foot-high candelabra which stood within the court of the women. And each of these candelabrum had four branches. At the top of every branch was this huge bowl. And four young men would bear these big pitchers of oil and climb ladders to fill the golden bowls and set them alight. And so you have to picture 16 large, Fierce blazes leaping toward the sky from these enormous golden lamps. And the temple, you'll recall, was on a hill. And so the glow would be a sight for the whole of Jerusalem and its environs to see. And that fire was to remind the people of how God's glory had once filled the temple. And it looked forward to a time when that glory would return. And it's into that scene that Jesus enters in John chapter 8, the Gospel lesson we just heard. He's teaching in the court soon after the temple illumination ceremony. And He's standing there right next to these magnificent candelabra. And He declares, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is, as the creed says, God of God, light of light. And this light has come into the darkness, and the darkness has not overpowered it. And in an audacious move, Jesus looks at us, he looks at his disciples and says, you 
are the light of the world. You are a city set on the hill. And to this day, this light of Christ and His church stands in stark, hostile antithesis. Antithesis means opposition. Antithesis to the darkness which surrounds us. Our text this morning from Ephesians chapter 5 highlights this antithesis. It it will enlarge really on what we saw last week where the Apostle urged us in many concrete, practical fashions to put on the new man, to put on the new clothing. And here, it's as if Paul remembers that he has a lot more to say about the Christian life. And so he launches into a whole other set of exhortations based on this antithesis, this conflict between the children of light and the sons of darkness. And so we'll make three points. Three points. Impurity, the light of Christ, and being filled with the Spirit. Impurity, light, and the Spirit, for short. So, first, impurity. The Apostle begins, Ephesians 5, verse 3, telling us there's not to be among us even a hint of sexual immorality, impurity, or greed. The three terms, immorality, impurity, and greed, are probably meant to expand and interpret each other. So all three words then have a sexual focus. Greed here probably means sexual covetousness or greed. Such behavior is not only not to be practiced, it isn't even to be hinted at, Paul says. This doesn't mean we can't call things as they are, that we can't name things properly. It simply means that these activities are not proper topics of conversation or interest. They are, we see at the end of verse 3, improper for God's holy people. They're not fitting for the saints. Here we see again Paul's appeal to the aesthetics of who we are in Christ. Such behavior creates an impossible dissonance with our calling in Christ. It's wholly out of accord with who the Apostle says you already are in the Lord. And he adds three types of speech which normally accompany sexual uncleanness. Obscenity, foolish talk, coarse jesting. Again, the accent is probably given the context on crude sexual humor. Unclean behavior is almost always accompanied by and preceded by unclean speech. And so human language like human sexuality, is a beautiful gift from God. It's what separates us from the beasts. And so, it is to be used soberly. This obscene, coarse language is also, you'll see in the text, out of place. Paul says it's not fitting. But God, He never asks us to replace something with nothing. And so at the end of verse 4, instead of degrading speech, he says, rather we are to give thanks. Rather we are to be thankful. 
There is a, a widespread and foolish notion in our culture, especially among its elites, that Christianity is fearful of sex, or thinks it's dirty, or that it's a sexually repressive religion. Really, nothing could be further from the truth than this. And when Paul calls us to gratitude in this context, surely gratitude for the gift of covenant sexuality is what is in view. We don't coarsely jest about these things. We don't speak crudely about them. We give thanks for them. Christian sexual ethics are not driven by repression. They're driven by a love of beauty and fidelity. A desire to reflect as holy ones our holy God. And this is a passage which tells us that it's gratitude for sexuality on God's terms that delivers us from uncleanness. Grateful people are content. They do not covet their neighbor's wives. They speak purely about the pure gifts of God. It's a failure to give thanks to God, which leads to the distortion of the good gifts described here. And so Paul issues a solemn warning in verse 5. He begins with, you can see this there in verse 5, for of this you can be sure. Meaning, this is not new news. This is something you are already aware of and you can be sure. You can be certain about this. No immoral, he says, impure or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now that's a, a stark warning. And we do well to heed it. Those, the apostle says, who engage in sexual impurity with covetous greed are idolaters. They are worshiping their own desires rather than the living God. They have become, as Paul will say elsewhere, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, I want to emphasize here, we are not talking here. The Apostle is not addressing the case of someone who falls into one of these sins and with humility and repentance seeks restoration. He's not even talking about someone who might struggle long with one of these sins. Because the gospel, we must never forget, is for broken, weak failures, which all of us are. It's for desperately needy people and for sinners. But here we are talking about a class of people who've abandoned themselves to a kind of sexually immoral lifestyle, who are sexually covetous and remain unrepentant. Such a person indicates that they haven't been sealed by the Spirit and that they're outside the kingdom of God and Christ. These are unpopular words, and because Paul knows that in the ancient world, as in our own day, they will seem harsh, they're not going to get any reinforcement from the culture at large, he adds, as if to steal you, he adds in verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. You're certainly here otherwise than this sober apostolic warning. In fact, that's all you'll hear is the opposite of this. You'll hear that God is too kind, that He loves everyone 
irrespective of their behavior, that he would never send anyone to hell, that such ideas are medieval and barbaric. That why is he so hung up about sexual activity anyway? Let no one deceive you. No one. No media personality, no professor, no religious figure. No family member, no friend, no colleague, no one. Such people are deceivers. And their words here are called empty or vain words. And you see at the end of verse 6, the Apostle says it's because of these things, greedy, covetous, sexual uncleanness, that the wrath of God comes upon the disobedient. Because of these things. You know, we heard, we heard a lot in the 90s during the impeachment process that this was just sex and that's really no big deal. Right? That is now the view of the whole culture on sexual immorality. It's just friction. Get over it. But mark this. This is an inspired utterance. It is these things which bring the wrath of God upon the disobedient. And this is not because God is an ogre or because He's, you know, a sort of a Victorian, Puritan sort of type of guy. It's because sexual uncleanness so defiles the image of God, it attacks the root of who we are as human beings, as male and female. And God in His goodness and in His holy love is jealous to guard it. He places a flaming sword around it. So if someone attacks one of your children and you were a righteous parent, it would provoke your just wrath. These things that the Apostle talks about are self-inflicted attacks on the image bearers of God. And they provoke His just wrath. Remember the Apostle says in 1 Corinthians, every other sin that a man commits is outside his body. But an immoral man sins against his own body. Right? He, takes the, he takes the members that God has created and breathed life into and sins against them. And God will destroy those, Paul says, who destroy His temple. It's because your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Betrothed to the triune God in Christ that you can't behave this way. And that God takes these things with such what seems to us ferocity. Therefore, verse 7 tells us plainly, do not be partakers with them. Do not participate in the permissiveness of the culture. Sever yourself from it completely. Let no one deceive you. The second point here is the light of Christ. And here we get further to the foundation of Paul's injunction. Verse 8, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. You were darkness, you were pervaded by darkness, now you are light. Irradiated by the one who stood in the temple, 
under those blazing torches and declare that He is the light of the world. Therefore, we're to live as children of the light. It's very important that you get this right, especially where there's a text that has this sharp of an exhortation. Right? It, this is the only kind of exhortation there is in the New Testament. Live as light in the Lord. It's not deal with sexual impurity and then you'll be light in the Lord. It's you can't live this way because God in His grace has already embraced you in His love and you are light in the Lord. That's Christianity. The other one is every other religion in the world. As light. You're already light. Be it. Be what you are. We're told to find out, the text says, what's acceptable. To discern God's will. And that means we're to have nothing to do, verse 11 says, with these barren or fruitless deeds of darkness. This is a point often overlooked by the cultural elites. These works of darkness are unfruitful. They're sterile and barren and destructive. They destroy human flourishing. This is why God opposes them. These are not acts of liberation. There are 30 million dead people from AIDS. This is a convenient little overlooked fact in the now complete embrace of the practice. And another 30 million who are infected. And we'd be here all day if I started rattling off STD statistics and divorce statistics, not to even mention the psychological cost of this stuff. We have nothing to do with these things, not because we're prudes. We have nothing to do with them for the same way that we want nothing to do with car wrecks. Again, the antithesis is total. Notice, have nothing to do with them. What, what fellowship, Paul asks rhetorically, does light have with darkness? Clearly the answer is none. Rather, he tells us a little later here, verses 11 and 12, we're to expose such works for it's shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. Now, this text could be read as calling for a denunciation of such behavior, and it may, it may, but the accent is not there in this text. The accent is that we expose them simply by being who we are, by being light. Right? The exposure of the darkness here is not meant simply to condemn it, but to transform it. You can see the flow of the Apostle's thought as the text unfolds. At the end of verse 13, we're told, the things which the light illumines themselves become light. That's what light does. Light doesn't condemn darkness. It just disperses it. It turns it into light. It transforms it. And that's how we are to be. As those who are light in the Lord, light in the world disperses the darkness and turns it into light. Paul illustrates this in verse 14. And he does it by quoting what looks to be like an early Christian hymn uh, adopted probably from the prophet Isaiah. Quite possibly from the Old Testament text that was read this morning. 
Wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. That is what we say to those who slumber in darkness. That Christ might give them light, even as He's illumined our darkness. That's our basic word to the world. It's a call to live in the light of Christ. And so the final point, the final point here is being filled with the Spirit. Verse 15. We are to be very careful how we live. The, the Christian life is a thing of utmost seriousness. And we have to live in a careful, serious manner. Which might not be natural to some of us. Some people are, not, some people are naturally cautious. Some aren't. I'm half Irish and half Italian. So I'm not naturally cautious by nature. My good friend and uh, colleague on the session, Dan Elmendorf, he's here today, and uh, I, he, we worked together at IBM for many years, and he, he'll remember it hundreds of times. I would come into his office, shut the door, sit down, and start blowing off steam about something I didn't like that was happening somewhere at IBM. And Dan would always say to me, be careful, be careful now. And uh, I, always, I said, Dan, you know, that's going to be on your tombstone. Dan, Dan, he was cautious. But he was right. He was right. He was always, it was always a wise brother saying to me, be careful. You don't want to say stuff that you might regret later. So we have to be careful about the way we live. And I, I think this is a point that we don't perhaps take enough note of. You know, whatever we're serious about, we take great care with it. And it's a tragedy to see men who are more serious about taking care of their lawns than they are about taking care of their souls. You have to watch yourself. There's dangers everywhere. And if you're alert, you're cautious, you're careful, you're sober, that kind of a disposition is going to lead you, as verse 16 says, to make the most of every opportunity. Or to redeem the time. Not only is sexuality a gift and speech is a gift, time is a gift of God and it's an irreplaceable resource. And yet we often behave as if we have an infinite amount of it. The human heart is really tricky here. We secretly seem to think, even though we know better, that we're going to live forever. I mean, after all, you only have consciousness of yourself as living. You can even scan past centuries and future centuries and future worlds. There's this sense in which we deceive ourselves into a kind of thinking that we're eternal. I actually did the calculation. Round, rounded. I've been alive for 28,908,000 minutes. So you think, your, your, your mind plays tricks on you. You think, well, here's the score. 28,908,000 living minutes, zero dead minutes. It's like a steady state. The future will be like the past. Right? The problem is that first little tick in the other column is a real bummer. Right? <laughs> It, it really, it really, but, but we actually don't think about it. 
Trust me, people act and think as if they are going to live forever. No one will come out and say it, but generally they think they're going to live to be three or four hundred years old. Right? That's why we waste so much time. One thing is certain about this sermon, whatever you may get out of it, it's going to take you 25 minutes closer to your grave. So Paul is saying here, look, you have to buy back the time. You have to take the initiative on the time. Time is not infinite. And you're not in charge of it. You know, it's always a little aggravating to me when the weather person says, we've got wonderful weather, George, for your Tuesday. I always say, look, look, it's not my Tuesday. It's not my weekend. As if I'm in possession of this. I belong to time. It doesn't belong to me. That, that ball up in the sun there, in the sky, that, that flaming fire, that thing that goes around the earth, that thing is grinding me to dust and bones. That's a murderous sun up there. Where do you get this notion that it's my weekend and you've got nice weather for my Wednesday? I'm not in possession of time. Time's in possession of me. And it's doing one basic thing, killing me. So I need to use it wisely because I don't have a whole lot of it. Use every opportunity God gives you. Before he was 20 years old, Jonathan Edwards made a resolution. Resolved. He made a bunch of them. This is one of them. Never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way I can. Now, of course, there are times you need to, if you will, waste some time, but only as, as a sense of a rejuvenation, you know, so that you can get, catch your breath, so that you can get back in the fight. But what Edwards is after is wise. It's what the psalmist said when he said, teach us to number our days. You know, if you knew the exact number of days you had left, your behavior would change pretty radically. You know, you pull one down off the wall every day, 12,841, 12,840, 12,839. You're not likely to throw a bunch of days away then. So you want to present to God a heart of wisdom. That's what Paul means here. So he gives us further insight, some more basic instruction on living redemptively in the time we're allotted. He says, don't get drunk with wine in verse 18. That's not only a waste of time, it leads to debauchery. It's disintegrating. It, it unravels your personality. Besides, it's a depressant. It's a fruitless and barren work of darkness. Instead, we're to be filled with the Spirit. This is the contrast. Ongoing, present tense. Not a one-time event. We have to continually ask and seek and allow the Holy Spirit to fill us because the Holy Spirit, unlike too much alcohol, integrates and heals our personalities. He fills us with light. He stimulates rather than depresses. And the fruit of this filling is seen in verses 19 and 20. Speak to one another in psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from, our hearts, from your hearts to the Lord. Spirit-filled people have transformed speech, and that means they sing for joy. This is another reason why we should sing robustly. 
with all our hearts to one another and to the Lord. We are always singing to one another and to the Lord at the same time in the congregation. In fact, in some songs it's explicit. Come let us worship and praise the Savior's great name. A song that says something like that is actually a song where you're addressing your neighbor. Come let us worship as you are praising God. Finally, finally, spirit-filled people give thanks in all things. We already saw this earlier in the text. But, uh, but the text closes with another exhortation to gratitude, which is the taproot of the Christian life. We are to be, and this is what we mean when we say this, we are to be a Eucharistic people. We call that the Eucharist. But Eucharist is the Greek word here in this text for giving thanks. A people of thanksgiving for all the, these gracious gifts of God, which in this context means we're a people who thank God for human sexuality, for speech, and for time. Have we thanked God for these things? Because if we don't cultivate gratitude for time, we won't use it right. And if we don't cultivate gratitude for speech, we won't speak aright. And if we don't cultivate gratitude for God's design and human sexuality, we won't view it aright. The 18th century English poet, Alexander Pope, famously and wisely, I think, wrote this. I want to read four lines from one of his poems. The first line is, Vice is a monster of so frightful mean. By mean here is M-I-E-N. It means character or nature. Vice is a monster of so frightful mean as to be hated needs but to be seen. Yet seen too oft, familiar with her face, we first endure, then pity, then embrace. Vice, the poem says, is of such a frightful character that to hate it you simply need to see it right. You just need to see it. It's ugly. But if you see it too often, apart from the light of Christ, we become familiar with her face, he says. We get adapted to and comfortable with vice. And then there is this slow degeneration in the poem. Having become familiar with her face, we first endure it. Then we pity it. Then we embrace it. This is what evil does to us. We start off hating it. We end up enduring it, pitying it, and then embracing it. And culturally, we are now in full embrace mode of monstrous immoral vices which just seven seconds ago the whole culture hated. So this is a text that calls you and I, calls us together to complete Descent. Total antithesis. For the stakes are high. They involve inheriting the kingdom of God, Paul says back there in verses 3 to 5. So let me exhort you be filled continually with the Spirit and give thanks. Be light in the Lord, expose and transform the darkness. Flee immorality and impurity and greed. You are God's holy people. You cannot shine in the night if you don't soak in the light. And that's about as clever as I can get, people. Right? You cannot shine in the night 
if you don't soak in the light. God is light, and in His light you too have become light. Be who you are. Let us walk as sons and daughters of light. Amen.